we continue in our study of First Peter. Today we're beginning the fourth chapter of First Peter. I'm going to pick up our reading in verse 1 and read on through verse 6. But it might not surprise you that this is probably going to be two weeks that we're going to be looking at these verses. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. (coughs) Excuse me. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God who has spoken. In this time, we pray that your Holy Spirit would take the things that you've said and illumine our hearts, plant it in there, that we would see clearly what you mean and what you call for us to do in light of it. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Excuse me. A bit of context. Chapter 3, as you remember, a big chunk of chapter 3 at any rate, was focused on the need to be both showing the light by our lifestyle, living the alien, the exile, the sojourner kind of lifestyle, and speaking the message that God's great call for his people is both to live in a certain way and to be speaking in a certain way. They have to go hand in hand, and therefore God wants us to be not only living a certain way, but his ambassadors speaking his word. We looked at some of the attitudes behind that speaking of his word. We talked about some specific strategies that the third chapter gives us on that. And then the third chapter ended with a summary of the very core gospel facts at the heart of that message that we're to be the ambassador of, to share with the world around us. Remember, we saw some of those facts that we are all sinners and thus separated from God facing judgment. The issue isn't simply people uh, being willing to say, well, yeah, I'm not perfect. The gospel is all about people saying, well, yeah, I'm not perfect, and it matters. The world has that mentality that God somehow marks on a curve. And while I may not be perfect, I think I'm not the dreg of society that somebody else is. But in God's standard, all have sinned, as Romans 3 puts it, and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And therefore, part of the message we proclaim is the reality that we are sinners and separated from God and facing inescapable, unavoidable, ultimate judgment for our rebellion. Secondly, one of those core issues is that Christ died for our sins. There was nothing we could do about it, nothing we could do to avert the necessary outcome of rebellion against God. But God did something and his great love for us, and he sent his son into the world to die for us. He died for us on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended back to heaven. He's in heaven right now. He is Lord, and he's coming again. And so we, we developed all of those different gospel facts 
that uh, lie at the heart of the message as ambassadors that God has called for us to share with the world. And I review all of those just to say, is that the message you're sharing with the world? Brothers and sisters, what a sad thing if the message that Christians share with the world is that, oh, God wants us to do a better job. Or God wants you to begin to have maybe a religious dimension to your life. Brothers and sisters, trying to do a better job and having a religious dimension to your life leaves you where you were. Sinners and separated from God, facing inescapable accountability before God. No. God is saying, come to your senses. Acknowledge the truth. Bow the knee. Receive Christ as Savior and trust in his work on your behalf. That's our message. Chapter 4 begins, building on all of that, with this. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Begins with that word, therefore. And, of course, whenever you encounter that word, not just in the scriptures, but other places, but especially in the scriptures, you know, it's linking us to some previous point. It's saying, because these things are true, now this is supposed to be true. Make an application of the things that you've learned in this fashion. And the scripture is filled with those linkages, therefores. And uh, God doesn't just leave it in the ambiguity of, of analysis to decide how, how does he want us to act in light of what he said. He's very specific about things. <clears throat> Uncomfortably specific about things. You ever found that to be true? It's like... I wish I didn't understand what you were saying here. I see what you're saying. Now I'm uncomfortable because I see what you're saying, and I see what you're calling for me to do. But he loves us enough to make us uncomfortable, praise God. Uh, he will not only inform us, but as 2 Corinthians 3:16 and 17 tells us, he also uh, rebukes us at times, and he corrects us, and he trains us. I'm glad he carries out the full-orbed fathering task, aren't you? Uh, he says what we need to hear. Well, the issue here is, therefore, because these things are true, because these gospel facts are there, and we need to be sharing those with the world, how should we now live as redeemed people who benefited from those facts? That's what that phrase means. So you should be thinking that is when you begin to read this fourth chapter. It's like, okay, well, in light of what we've seen, how's this work out? What should I be doing? I was thinking years ago, Francis Schaeffer, when he was still in this world instead of with the Lord, uh, had written a, a classic book called How Should We Then Live? And essentially, that's what this opening verse is saying. You know, it's posing that question. How then should we live? <laughs> if, if this stuff is true, if God's word is true, the things that we've been studying are true, how should we live then? What, what, what ought to be the application to life as we're seeking to live it? How should we now use our time, our gifts, our energy in the midst of this world? Here's the crucial fact. God has spoken. And because he has spoken, listen, he didn't speak just so that we could learn biblical truth. I don't say that to diminish that, because without biblical truth, we're in the darkness, brothers and sisters. So that's a great blessing, a wonderful thing. But God didn't, didn't speak to give us that truth, to inform us or educate us, although that's part of it. Remember, Second 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures inspired, God-breathed, and profitable to teach us. We need to be taught. But God gave us his word to transform us, to change us. Nothing sadder than a person that has come to know truth and doesn't apply it. Nothing sadder than for the God of the universe to have spoken and somebody even grasp what's being said enough that they can say, well, I understand it now and not do it. God's great intention is knowledge not for the sake only of knowledge, but knowledge for the sake of change and transformation. Think of James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25 in that regard. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in what he is doing. Brothers and sisters, God has not called you and he has not called me to be a mere gazer. He has called me to be a changed person. When in mercy his mirror reveals the truth, my task at that point isn't to say, oh Lord, I'm so glad you told me this, and I'm going to file it away so I can bring it up at the next quiz and make sure I get the right answer. No, no. You showed me this, not merely to satisfy my curiosity. You showed me this because you see there's something needing to be different in me. By the way, all of us before the Lord understand there's a lot that needs to be different <laughs> before him. And he knows that. But anyway, that's what it's about. God is calling for us that way. He calls for us to live differently. And in particular, in the theme, the overall theme of 1 Peter, he wants us to live differently than the ideas and attitudes of the fallen world in which we find ourselves. Because remember, that's the overarching theme in 1 Peter. We, we are exiles or aliens or sojourners in a foreign land. The world that we find ourselves in, whether we have citizenship in a country or not, is irrelevant. The world we find ourselves in is foreign, as far as the true homeland and in terms of the mentality that we're supposed to be possessing as redeemed children whose commonwealth is in heaven. God has called for us to be countercultural. So, looking at the issue here, how then shall I live? How, what should I live like now in light of all of these truths we've been learning? You know, the decision about how we're to live our lives actually reduces down to just two choices. Uh, I have found, quite frankly, that most of the major decisions of life, eternal decisions of life, are not all that complicated. They really come down in a sort of black and white way, not in a gray way, to this is true and this isn't true. This is how we're supposed to be. This is not how we're supposed to be. It's not that complicated. And there's really just two options available to a person. Number one option, we'll live what remains of our lives for our own will, or driven by our own will. Or, 
we'll live what remains of our life for the will of God, not our will. Two choices, pretty straightforward ones. Somebody says, well, isn't there a third, like, I can carve out a little bit, give God a piece of my life? Certainly, he'll be pleased with that. Uh, Think about it in the earthly sense. Let's say you had a father who was, uh, you know, loving and yet firm with you, and he said, okay, this is what I want you to do. Think about going back to that father and saying, well, I, I know I'm not going to do that exactly, but what I will do, you know, I know you want me to mow the lawn, but I'm not going to do that, but I will wash the dishes. I mean, that's how people try to deal with God all the time. Listen, that's not going to work. Uh, God's not in the negotiation mode with us. Like, well, you won't do this, but you'll do this. Okay, well, that's acceptable. That's not how God deals with it, you see. You remember in uh, Romans 12, 1, he says, I want you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Uh, this isn't about a little bit here and a little bit there. Uh, if we make that first choice to live our lives for our will, that means that basically how my life unfolds is driven by what I think best serves my self-interest. It doesn't necessarily mean it's showing up in grossly immoral fashion, grossly ethically challenged ways. Somebody might in wisdom say, I don't think it's in my best interest to be morally corrupt. I don't think it's in my best interest to live in this fashion. But it's still what they're choosing, you see. I'm going to live in a certain fashion. I'll prioritize what I want to prioritize. I'll do what I think will make me happy and content. And that attitude, by the way, can persist even in the redeemed. And I want to come back to that in a few minutes. And as I say, if I sit down and say, well, I've thought about it, Lord, and I decided I want to add a religious dimension to my life. I'll show up, if not every Sunday, but once in a while I'll show up at church. And and I will maybe not do this, and I will start doing that. If we think we can negotiate with God, we are fools. Fools! The only place you have to turn to find anything that doesn't make you a fool is here. And I submit to you, you could search from Genesis to Revelation and find no place where God says, well, let's sit down and negotiate this out. You know, What would you like to do for me? And let's find some middle ground. From Genesis onward, there's no middle ground. If you want to know what God wants for you to do, here it is. Okay, well, I'm not sure I want to do that. Well, then that's called disobedience. That's called self-will. Ah, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's supposed to be. The other option is we can choose to live our lives for the will of God. That I make a determination that whatever's left of my life, I'm going to do what God's called me to do. I'm going to be surrendered to his purpose and his direction. I'll fulfill his will. As I say, there's not any real middle ground here. Either I am still controlling my life even though I might do a relatively moral job of it, or I'm yielding control of my life to God. I mean, that's really the option. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, Think of it in that classic sense of a throne, like who's on the throne of the life? Uh, Is it you? Or is it God? Or think of a steering wheel, another image that people use. You know, who's actually in the driver's seat turning the, you know, turning the wheel? Who's making determinations on where things are going? 
Is it going to be God who's on the throne of our lives or the steering wheel of our life, or are we going to be? Who sits there? Who really is master of the way I live, of the priorities of my life, the determinations of my life? Well, that's the issue he begins the fourth chapter with. And he says, listen, I'm calling for you to live distinctive lives different from the culture around you. The culture essentially is idolatrous in that they've put themselves, as well as other things, in the place of worship for themselves. They live for themselves. I want you to live for me. I want to be God, not you. And if you're trying to be God, but giving me a little bit of a handout by trying to be moral or ethical or religious, I still don't accept it. (laughs) Either I'm God or, or you're God. That's what it comes down to. Who's in charge? Well, let's move on from there. He says, listen, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh for no, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that's past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Here's the point. You only got one life. I mean, none of us gets several unless we're truly distorted in an Eastern mysticism sense and think there's an endless cycle of reincarnations going on. Uh, Nothing more foolish, even from a rational standpoint, than that. But nonetheless, some people turn their brain off and think, oh, well, I think that's the way it is. No, no, brothers and sisters, (laughs) you got one life, that's it. That's it. That's all you got. So don't waste what you got left. That's essentially... Uh, Gary's modern translation of verses 1 and 2. Don't waste what you got left. Uh, Don't live like the Gentiles live. Now, by the way, this was written to believers, not to the unsaved. It would be foolhardy to think it's written to the unsaved because that's already, they're already living the way they want. This is a message to the people who have been redeemed acting on the messages of chapter 3. And he's saying, because this is true, I don't want you to be this way. When you say no longer, it implies a couple different things. Number one, it implies that it's something you're still doing. If God says, I don't want you to do this any longer, uh, it must be that to a degree I'm doing it. I mean, it seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it? It's like, oh, well, maybe I guess I may be doing that. Therefore, it's very possible for a redeemed believer to continue to make the bad choice on how they live their life. And we're not talking again about moral degeneracy here. That's a pretty obvious thing. Somebody living in a morally degenerate way, it's pretty obvious that's not pleasing to God. (laughs) You know, who's going to argue from that standpoint? Say, well, God doesn't care. No, no, no. But if you're living a fairly upright life, you might think, well, at least God's happy with that. And God says, well, no. I don't want you to continue to live this way. I don't want you to do this any longer. Number one, I don't want you to do it. Number two, many must have still been doing it. And number three, if God didn't say something, they probably would keep on doing it. Pretty straightforward stuff, really. Uh, And so God says, I love you. I'll say something. (laughs) Don't do this anymore. Don't live this way anymore. The command makes no sense if a believer has no choice in the matter. 
The Bible's not filled up with fanciful scenarios, like what-ifs that are only theoretical and could never be realized. If God's speaking to something, it's because it's a real possibility, you see. He's not just uh, hypothesizing. He says, listen, it's possible you could be doing this. And I don't want you to do it any longer. I don't want you to live this fashion. If we live making that choice to live for our own will instead of the will of God, the inevitable outcome is wasting what time we've got. Wasting that limited period of time we have as children of God. The issue in these verses isn't whether you're choosing to try to live an upright moral life or whether you're choosing to live a degenerate life. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about who's in control of the life. Consider that phrase, rest of time. Don't live for the rest of the time. You know, one of the implications of that, you only have a limited amount of time. I mean, if, if you use the phrase, rest of time, it's underscoring the fact time exists. I only got a little bit of it. I only got, and whatever I had initially, I only got this much left. I mean, there's only this much left the rest of the time that I've got to make choices about. Live the rest of the time you've got, which none of us knows how long it is, but at least live the rest of the time you've got, not in the flesh, not like the world approaches things, but live it surrendered to me. That's the logic here of the passage. It says, you only got this much time. You can't afford to waste any more of it. In fact, it also says this. You and I already stand before the Father recognizing I've squandered an enormous amount of time. I only have this much time. You know, as Psalm 139 puts it, all of my days are numbered. God's, you know. I've already blown more than I should have. Now, I know that might be disheartening to you that the pastor would admit that, but the reality is the same is true of you. You've already blown enough of your life, too. And we're not talking about being saved or not saved. You say, well, I'm saved, so I haven't, I'm not blowing. Yeah, but God's holding you accountable, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10, in the beam of the judgment seat of Christ, on what you're doing with the time as a redeemed child of God. And it's possible, as 1 Corinthians makes plain to us, that as a, as a redeemed child of God, you could be saved as through fires. So you've got nothing to show for it. You're just, in other words, it's been a waste. That's possible. And so God says, well, you've wasted enough time. Let's get busy. Let's make sure with what's left in whatever that time frame is that God has given you, that you're using it in a way that is not wasted, not squandered. Well, don't waste any more of it. I can say with tears before the Lord, I squandered some time. There's, there's been time after finding redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ that my life has not been lived in a completely surrendered fashion where I've called shots, where I've done this or I've done that. I don't get those years back or months or days or weeks. They're gone. 
you know, they're gone. All I got is what's from here on out. And that's all you've got, too. God says, don't let from here on out be characterized by what was true from here backwards. (laughs) Make sure that I'm the Lord. Make sure that you are not squandering what I'm giving you. We are to choose to live our lives for the will of God. Paul captures this in Acts chapter 20 in his final opportunity to be with the Ephesian elders on his way to Jerusalem, eventual imprisonment and eventual martyrdom. Notice what he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not count my life as of any value or as precious to myself if only I could finish the course, my course, and finish the ministry I've received from the Lord to testify to the grace of God. He'd understood my life's squandered if I'm not fulfilling God's call on my life. My life is squandered if I'm not surrendered before Him and in touch with what His leadership is. He says, my life, it's of no account. It's of no value. One of the great challenges for Lordship, by the way, to decide He's going to be Lord of my life is because we squander our life if we don't do that. That's why we miss the point if our challenge to one another is just to turn over new leaves, even as a believer, to just to try to have some different disciplines in our life or something. It's not that there's not a place for obedience or disciplines, but you could be squandering every second of your time trying to do those things. God says, no, listen, don't squander anymore your life. Be surrendered. Present your body's living sacrifice. Then whatever you got, you won't be squandered. Let it fulfill its purpose. So how do we make sure we're not squandering anything, wasting our life? Well, he goes on and he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for their human passions, but for the will of God, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. How do I stop wasting? He gives us three directions here. He says, number one, adopt Christ's way of thinking, particularly towards suffering, but in general, adopt how Christ looks at things. That's how you're supposed to look at it. And then choose to cease from sin, and then choose to live for God's will, not your own sense of what you think ought to be. Straightforward, look at him. He says, first of all, arm yourselves with Christ's way of thinking, particularly his way of thinking about suffering, because that's the context he's talking about here. Since Christ therefore suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, what is that thinking? Back in the second chapter, it says in verse 21 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. God says, listen, arm yourself by thinking like Christ. 
it's a way of thinking that arms us. It's no surprise here, by the way. Arm means literally, but it's, that translation's a good one. That's your weapon. You say, well, isn't the word of God our sword? Yeah, well, yeah, it is in the broader sense of spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6, the word of God is our sword. But God says there's more than that in the armory. One of the parts of the weapons that you are to arm yourself with is an attitude. Think about things like Christ thinks about things. And apart from doing that, you'll never carry out the command. You have to think about it like he does. He was willing, as we saw at the end of the second chapter, to suffer if it served God's purpose. It's like, well, if it serves God's purpose, okay. That's, I'll entrust myself to him. Often, we are hesitant to turn over the steering wheel or to step down from the throne because we're a little suspicious that if we do that wholeheartedly, God's will might bring with it maybe some suffering. Uh, things may not be hunky-dory living in the center of his will. And after all, we've all done such a wonderful job of making it hunky-dory by directing our own lives, right? And so we think, well, maybe, maybe this is, I'm a little hesitant about this. But God says, listen, trust me. Trust my purpose in your life. Trust that uh, I have things I will use, and even if some things happen that aren't the most comfortable, I will work them out. It will make your life fruitful. It will make your life useful. and will ultimately satisfy you at the deepest level. You've got to trust me about it. Can I trust his purpose, ultimately a good purpose, to make my life make a difference? Or am I not so confident that if I let him be first place, that my life, in fact, will make a difference? Or am I afraid he's going to, if he gets the wheel, we're headed right for that tree. You know, what, what do I, how do I think of God in my life? You say, well, well I, I know God wouldn't steer me into a tree, uh, but you still haven't given him the wheel. Well, yeah, I know. I, 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 I guess I'm not really concerned he's going to give me a tree, but I'm not sure where, where he's going. I'm, I'm not sure, as a result, where I'm going. Uh, do you see, it's that practical. It's that practical. Can I trust God? God says, trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And we say, is there another option? You know, is there another option? And God says, uh, no, no. Uh, trust me. Trust me. The second thing he talks about here, he says, choose to cease from sin. Cease from literally translates a Greek phrase, meaning get released from or freedom from. Determine that you're going to live a holy life, pleasing to the Lord. Now, that's been a theme throughout First Peter, of course. And he's just simply returning to it here. But, brothers and sisters, this is not saying that the solution here is a sinless perfectionism. Uh, no, that's not what he's saying, because we still stumble <laughs> at times. He's talking about an overarching attitude. Choosing to move in a direction that pleases God, honors him, 
and reflects ever increasingly the wonder of being controlled by Him through the enabling of the Spirit. Uh, an attitude, I think, that is really well illustrated in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul, in describing his life, listen to these words, uh, beginning in verse 12 of Philippians 3, he says, Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect. It's always hope in that, brothers and sisters. It's like, well, this was near the end of his life, wasn't he? He was in prison at this time? Well, yeah. He wasn't already perfect? Well, no. He must not have had the right altar to go to, right? That would be the thinking of some people. But no, it wasn't that he had the wrong altar. It's the reality. It's a lifelong process to be growing in ministry and to grow in fruitfulness. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I see where he wants me to be. I'm not totally there. I'm going to press on. I want to get there. I want to keep moving in that direction. That's his attitude. He says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He didn't, make me, he didn't hold out for me the promise he would make me his own if only I could get to the end of the task. He's already made me his own in the gospel that he responded to. But he said, because of that, I want to keep growing. He says, brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own yet, but one thing I do, forget what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Getting back to 1 Peter. That's what ceasing from sin is all about. Seeing where we're supposed to be. Pressing on. Understanding we're not going to get there apart from the enablement of the Spirit of God. Not going to get there apart from surrender. But it's still going to be a time process. And there's going to be stumblings along the way. But we press on. We keep moving in that direction. It's only as we keep moving and pressing that we end up achieving this issue of how then shall I live. And the answer is, this better be the way you live. From here on in, don't live any way different than pressing on, trying to become who God has called you to be. In the first chapter, verses 14 to 16 of 1 Peter, he says, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, be holy in all of your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In the second chapter, in verses 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Part of the issue here is accepting the fact that there's a connection between personal holiness, growing, pressing on, and suffering. I was thinking of 2 Timothy 3.12. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, the wonderful passage about God-breathed words and all that. In verse 12, it says this in the third chapter of 2 Timothy, All who desire to live godly lives in Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I did an extensive study of that one time in my life because I thought, I bet it's mistranslated. I bet what the Greek says here is that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus may end up being persecuted at times. There's no may. <laughs> I'm sad to say. <laughs> all who desire that will be persecuted. So the issue, you see the, the irony of this issue? Part of what keeps people from putting them in the driver's seat is the outside chance that it could lead to some hard times. 
And when God says, well, don't worry about that, because it will, that puts it down. Okay, so it will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not promising you not to let anything like that happen. I am promising I'll never leave you, forsake you. I am promising I'll be your strength in the midst of all of those things. I, I do promise you that you can be productive even in the face of such opposition, which, of course, Christ was, too. But he says, don't waste your time wondering whether this could happen. Yeah, it will. You say, well, I'm a little hesitant because I think some in my family may not be real happy if I do this. Well, Scripture makes it pretty plain that in following the gospel, there's going to be times when that turns parents against children, uh, children against parents, brothers against sisters. There's no promise. God says, well, I'll work it all out in your family if you decide to do this. No, because he doesn't turn them into robots either. Your family can be filled with sin as well. People in rebellion against God. God makes no promise. That's not why we surrender to him, because we've calculated it out and say, well, here's the... Here's the good life. Here's, here's the way to have some sort of hedge around my life. False teachers tell you that'll happen, but not the Bible. No, the way you do it is to face the facts. <laughs> this, is, this is what's going to happen. Am I worth it? Do you want your life to count? Or do you want to go through life in this limited time frame you've got, simply squandering it? So you come to your last moments thinking, what a waste this has been. By the way, suffering when surrendered helps us indirectly with sin, (laughs) interestingly enough, in this challenge. Why? Because suffering sort of sorts out what's important in life, doesn't it? Anybody been through some hard suffering? Well, most of us have. Uh, Not that we had a good time when we're there. But in the midst of it, one of the things that starts to emerge is you start to weigh things out. Uh, You find a lot of the things that people are living for are pretty empty. What happens in suffering is the book of Ecclesiastes fleshes out in our life, where the author talks about all of these different avenues that he pursued to find meaning and purpose, and all of them ended up being vanities, empty, meaningless. Suffering helps to sort that out. It's like, oh, well, that's ultimately meaningless. Yep, it is. Uh, And therefore, it puts eternity into focus. It helps to reduce sin's short-term appeal. Well, finally, choose daily to live for the will of God, not your own purpose and will. I mean, that's pretty straightforward stuff. We've talked about Romans 12.1. That's kind of what it is. It's why we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit on an ongoing basis. In Ephesians 5.18, it says, literally in the Greek, be ye being filled continuously as an ongoing reality of life. Be filled with the Spirit. Choosing the will of God instead of our own will is not a one-time crisis decision. It's a daily decision. Now, what do I mean by that? The challenge here in 1 Peter 4 is not a challenge to an alter experience. It's a challenge to an AM experience. AM as in morning is a challenge that every morning we wake up and say, who's going to sit on the throne? Who's going to steer the wheel? Who's in charge? Today, pick up my cross, follow him. 
This AM, I choose to put him in charge. Now, I'll fight myself throughout the day at times about that decision. <laughs> but that's the decision. You see, it's not a crisis time only. It's a daily thing. And to see that contrast between altar and AM is helpful to me. I hope it's helpful to you. That's what we're being called to in this case. Each day, sorting it out. What will you choose? C.T. Studd, the great missionary to China from three generations ago, believe it or not now, said this, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. I mean, that's, that kind of crystallizes this, doesn't it? I mean, that's really what it is. You want to waste your life? God says you've already squandered it enough. You've already wasted enough of it. Isn't that like a loving father saying, hey, you screwed up big time. Don't live this way for the rest of your high school. You know, let's, let's move this direction. Don't move this way for your life. I mean, don't squander any more life. There's no way not to squander. You're, you're still going to squander it even if you're choosing to live a relatively religious, moral, upright life. It's still squandered. <clears throat> the only way you don't squander it is by letting me be the Lord in your life. Let me be Lord. Well, Lord willing, next time we'll look at the remaining verses here in this opening segment. And as God describes for us kind of the pathway to squandered life that is opted for by the world around us. What they see as the direction to the good time and the satisfying life. And God says, don't buy it. Don't buy it. It's not true. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for a chance to be together on this day, to be with brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to sing, to worship you, to pray, to share, to be in your word. Plant your word within us, Lord, and encourage us in this day, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.